right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Lane Gillespie. Hello, hello. I am Derek Johnson here for this edition of RCST. We've got a ton of audio to share for you today, and we're not even going to get to all of it. We'll have more to share for you tomorrow and everything. We're actually guestless on today's show. A big reason why is, you know, a lot of media members are actually out at the Big 12 media days, so, you know, a little tougher to get them on the show and everything. But beyond that, we just have so much audio that's going to overcome that. So, Brett, your your mark... Spoke with is the, it your Mac or your Mark? I thought it was your Mac. It's your Mark, I guess. Is it really? Yeah, okay, I guess so. Well, I'm glad I got that right when he was first I know, hired. Right? <laughs> I, I, I've been saying your Mac the whole time. Uh, so Brett Yormark spoke with the media for I believe the first time, like publicly, um, as part of this press conference situation. It was a lot of questions and answers, as you would imagine. We're going to get into some of those clips here in a second. We're going to give you the full audio throughout today's show. We've got some Lance Leipold audio to get for you here on today's show. We've got a KU mailbag. If you still have any questions, we have a handful that have come in so far. You can uh, hit us up at RCST1320 or my Twitter account at Radio if you want to get any questions in, whether it's KU-related or just anything in between. We're going to have an open preview, the open is uh, coming up tomorrow, and we're going to have some open updates throughout the day um, thanks to Westwood One, and then there's some Chiefs news going on. So pretty loaded show once again today, and we kick things off again in regards these things kind of tying together in the realignment world with Brett Yormark speaking today. So this comes from uh, Jeffrey Fuller, who um, he's just like a dude. He's just, you know, he he's just, just a dude, with, eh? He just likes college sports, right. I guess. Just a guy, you know? Stats junkie um, is what he says on his uh, Twitter profile. Yeah, yeah. So he actually went in and did some research on conference payout projections. And this is based on, so Navigate had these uh, report back on March 22nd about the projections for each conference and their payouts from now until 2029. And the data was... was Again, reworked from those projections, which were done in the athletic, which included tier one, tier two, and tier three rights. Um, and it also assumed, as part of this article in the athletic with Navigate, an expanded 12 team college football playoff in 2026 with all power five power five conferences getting an auto bid because that kind of factors in to the uh, to the account. And so, what he did here as part of this, you know, there was that estimation. That um, by losing USC and and UCLA, which was kind of reported by John Wilmer and John Canzano, that losing them would lead to a market loss at 40% of the Pac-12's mm-hmm. TV value. So he took that into account in estimating uh, the Pac-12. 
So if you go through the list, this becomes very interesting. Like, as you would imagine, the Big Ten is just soaring up. It's like 57 million this year, 59 million next year, 2024 jumping all the way to 90 million um, with the introduction of USC and UCLA, 94 million in 2025. Then it jumps to projection of 120 million by 2026 and and up and up and up from there. SEC is the same way, 54 million this year, 56 this, next year. And this is per team, correct? Yes, this is what each team would make. Um, and, and this is based on <laughs> the assumption lot. that Oklahoma and UT would enter in 2025. Once that happens, they jump up to about 75 million. Then they'd go up to over 100 million in 2026. It is interesting. The Big Ten is actually pretty much every year expected uh, to, you know, starting with like 2024, they're expected to be up 10 to $20 million per year, even over the SEC Jeez. with what they've done, which is very interesting. But where this comes into play here in local country in the Big 12 and, and in this realignment talk is you look at the Pac-12. So the projections right now, uh, they distributed over $30 million, about $34, $35 million to each school with USC and UCLA. It's expected to be 35 and a half next year, which will be the last year in the conference for those two schools. Based on that projection of a 40% loss, in 2024, Pac-12 schools would only be getting $20 million based on this research project. Now, again, the research uh, company who did this, Navigate, you can't just take it for everything because uh, we've talked about this before like who's to say what teams enter into the fray right or, or not teams what you know media right companies yeah. amazon and and whatnot that could drive up the market a little bit but the point is if there are those companies that are getting interested in in college football and, and having the streaming there why would they just be interested in the pac 12 like hypothetically if they're going to bid on the pac 12 whenever the big 12 comes up they're going to bid on them too so it, w it would kind of a uh, you know, what's that saying? Like a, a raising tide, raise all boats, something like that. I totally messed up that saying, <laughs> but you, you get the point um, that I was going to say, I have no idea what you're, well, what if, you're if, talking if, about. Basically, that. if there is more money out there for the Pac-12 to be had with these media rights deals, that means there's also going to be more money out there for the Big 12 and these other conferences. So you look at starting again, because 2024 is the year when that starts to go down um, for USC and UCLA gone. That means the Big 12, the projection here is that schools would be distributed more than double the amount of money per school. And yes, that is with Texas and Oklahoma in the conference. Well, let's fast forward to 2025 then, when Texas and Oklahoma are projected to leave the conference. It's still almost double the amount of money in 2025, $44 million to the $23 million mm -hmm. that the Pac-12 is estimated. And then you go further down the list, right? Like, we go to 2026, when the new Big 12 media rights deal would be projected to be had, and Texas and Oklahoma would be gone at this point. Your four new schools would be in there for a few years. At that point, 2026, the estimation is for the Big 12 up to 50, almost $3 million, whereas the Pac-12 is under $32 million. Point blank, the, the purpose of all this is how far the Pac-12 would be behind these other conferences. And it's not just the Big 12, for instance. Um, you know, if you make comparisons to the ACC, it's in some cases 15 20 million dollars per school distributed less once we get you know to the years 2024 and beyond the pac 12 is is certainly at a spot where because again we have this like report from john wilner today which backs up the stuff we've kind of been talking about the last couple of days uh, a source told john wilner who's kind of been on top of all this realignment stuff and broke the usc ucla news unless pac 12 schools make a panic move 
quote, I wouldn't be surprised if they go the whole season before the future of conference is resolved. There is no rush. So you have these these conference teams that are, you know, basically saying we're going to stay together for the near term and figure out uh, what our direction is going to be. But based on these projections, once, you know, they, they stick around for a while, if they stick around for another year or two, and they see the options that are on the table with other media rights deals, whether it's their conference or the other conferences they could possibly go to, it's hard not to look at those projections, which again, are not the be all end all and not just be like, that's got to be doomsday for these Pac-12 teams then, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. And it may, it, it basically just means you have to figure out uh, when it comes to teams, when it comes to meteorites, you have to figure it out ASAP. If in two years you're going to be losing a bunch of money uh, for paying out these teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also got me thinking, you know, I did when I first saw this tweet, I did a lot of research, and I kind of had a breakthrough to why these teams are doing this and why there's this whole realignment thing. Well, it's especially USC and UCLA. What do they have in common? They are in Los Angeles. That's what they both have in common. Well, when COVID hit, what city got hit pretty dang hard? That would be Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. UCLA and USC lost a ton of money. Naturally, a lot of teams did. A lot of teams also made money, which is weird. Um, basically, you're good. Like when it comes to revenues and expenses, you're good if you break even. Like if you don't know, um, if you break even, then you do just about pretty darn well. Well, UCLA lost over double what they made. Like I think the stat that I saw, this is 2020 through 21. They couldn't get a dang thing out of ticket sales because nobody could go to games in Los Angeles. Yeah, there there were some reports that came out that said if UCLA didn't make this move to the Big Ten with the promise of more money on the way, they were going to have to cut a bunch of sports. Exactly. So I think that's just why they made that decision. And I don't know how I didn't think about this earlier, how the pandemic basically could have could be, which they I don't think they really said why they are deciding to move, but I'm pretty sure that's one of the big reasons why they decided to move. And it's because, well, when they get into the Big Ten, they're going to be making about $90 million just from the Big Ten alone, when already they're only making like 30-something million out of the Pac-12. So the difference is night and day, basically, when it comes to moving from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten. And with the Pac-12, now the projection making $20 million in 2024, it is now in my mind I think it's quite possible some Pac-12 teams might leave because of that. Yeah, if, they, if that's what it ends up being with the media rights deal, and, and to be completely honest, even if it's like $30 million where they're even making a little bit less than what they are now, whereas you, you know, go to, I don't know, um, just whatever like the Big 12 is making or, or something, um, it's going to be hard for those schools not to see that and be like, man, we might have to cut sports if, if we don't make this move. Right. And maybe that that increases the chance that, that you go somewhere else. But it certainly sounds like that, once again, is going to be more of kind of a patient game that could take a little bit of time. So we got to hear from Brett Yormark, and, and this ties back all into this with the realignment stuff and the Big 12. Obviously, as you would expect, like you didn't just come out and be like, yeah, we've we've been having some uh, deep conversations. I had a really good dinner meeting with uh, the Colorado AD, and they, like he's, that, that's not going to be how it works. But... Um, shared some some interesting stuff, uh, kind of hinting at, at certain things uh, over the course of, of his pressers, which we're going to share for you coming up in a bit. But I did want to share a couple clips and, and get to those more specifically. Um, here is your mark on kind of talking about the beginning of, of his job 
and some of the challenges with, with realignment and the media rights deals that are going to be upcoming. One thing is for sure, there is no doubt the Big 12 is open for business. We will leave no stone unturned to drive value for the conference. Just as I pledge to the board, we will be bold and humble, aggressive and thoughtful, and innovative and creative, all in an effort to position the conference in a way that not only grows the Big 12 brand and business, but makes us a bit more contemporary. Although there will be challenges ahead, Bob has left me an incredible foundation to build upon. During August and September, I will conduct a listening tour and visit all 14 campuses. I will meet with stakeholders to gain a historical point of view and to ask, what does success look like? Following my first 60 to 90 days, I will report back to the board with my observations and how I see our path forward. I will work very closely with our member institutions to ensure we are prepared to seize opportunities that benefit our league. And if those happen within the first 60 days, we will move as fast as we need to. One thing is crystal clear. There is no higher priority than to best position the Big 12 for its upcoming multimedia rights negotiations. Everything we do must create momentum for these negotiations. Man just got hired and he already has such a busy schedule. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, that is the, the life of a conference commissioner during realignment, I guess. Um, so a couple things that, that stand out in that clip to me. One is the specific, I mean, these are exact words that he used, open for business. I mean, if if that doesn't give you an indication mm. of, of them trying to make moves, then I don't know what would. The other thing that I found really interesting where there was him, him saying specifically, you know, if something happens in the first 60 days, it happens. Do you think that was a premonition? Oh, yeah, it might be. Because um. otherwise, like, why <laughs> there would be no reason to put, like, a timeline on it. Like, it's not like people were have been speculating that, oh, if, if Big 12, Pac-12 realignment happens, it has to happen in the next 60 days. Uh, and, and it would certainly be more beneficial to the Big 12 to be like, hey, let's make this happen now before the Pac-12 can come up with a solution to keep you guys. So, like, you know, there is a haste to it that you want to matter. But I found that very interesting that he put that 60 days on there. It, it does make me wonder if he's had conversations with maybe some of these Pac-12 schools and they said that, yeah, we need to go through stuff. Because I've also heard some, you know, interviews and reports about people being like, you would be surprised how many people in the, the college athletic department world right now are just on vacation because this is their last yeah. chance before the, the school year starts. You're not going to have all these wide decisions. I don't know. Do you think that's a premonition? Do you think I'm just reading into things? No, I think I, I think it's reasonable to read into it that way. You know, he said first 60 to 90 days, and he also said he's going to visit all 14 campuses. Who's to say that that's, that might just stop there? Mm -hmm. He could just go even further, right. possibly go out west and uh, talk to some others. He's already going to be in Utah if he's going to go to BYU. Why not go a little further west? Yeah, go over to uh, yeah Utah and check out Oregon and all those things. Okay, uh, so he also mentioned, this just kind of backing up further, the idea of you know being actively engaged in, in the realignment conversation. Here is more from Brett Yormark. I've been actively engaged in realignment and appreciate the incredible input I've received from everyone throughout the conference. Exploration and optionality is at the forefront of what we are focused on. Anything considered must be additive and not dilutive. Sometimes the best deals are the ones that don't get done. 
So interesting there, further backs up the idea they're in realignment. But the part he just says at the end there. Yeah. Some of the best deals are the ones that don't get done. That kind of, that, that very much tells me that, yes, we'd love to add these Pac-12 teams. We're not just going to add to add. Right? Like, maybe we will add, because, again, that was a report like last year, at different commissioners, who knows. Maybe we'll add Boise State and, and Memphis, because those have been teams we've been rumored for for a little bit here. But we're not just going to go adding, you know, Tulane and whatever, like, schools you want to talk about, mm-hmm. San Diego State, just for the sake of adding them. Right. Yeah, and he's got you got a pretty good point there. It's definitely going to be a lot of reason, and you can definitely add that premonition to all the deals that he might, you know, try to come through with. The guy's a businessman. He's very le- he's a yeah. very legitimate businessman. Yes, he is. So I honestly see that a lot of those could actually pull through. Here is uh, Brett Yormark talking about receiving interest from uh, plenty of different schools. I think it's fair to say I've received a lot of phone calls, a lot of interest. People understand the direction of the Big 12, and we're exploring those levels of interest. Nothing is imminent, but we're working hard to make sure that we position the Big 12 in the best possible way on a go-forward basis. Okay, so, you know, again, nothing like shattering there. He doesn't say what schools they are, the schools that are calling him from the Mountain West. And I mean, honestly, honestly, in, that, in this kind of situation, you kind of have to keep it blunt. For sure. He can't just name the schools. Right. <laughs> uh the last clip that I have to share here before we actually get into the the full stuff of, of Brett Yormark is him kind of talking about what he kind of wants to do with the conference. And there was a key word here that I want to get to in a second. So let's play the clip here. Incredible upside with the Big 12. It's one of the reasons, again, I'm here today. We have a chance to build our brand, our business, nationalize our conference in a way that it hasn't been done before. And I'm excited to go to work and, and start that process. The word nationalize. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean to you? That means to me we've seen the Big Ten nationalize. They've expanded out geography-wise into California and the West Coast. We've seen the SEC. I mean, I don't know. Texas and Oklahoma are, are not, like, far away. It's like you have LSU and stuff right there and stuff. Uh, the point is that with the lack of geography and, and regional ties and stuff, the mention of nationalizing tells me, furthermore, yeah, let's add some Pac-12 teams. Yeah, we'd love to add Oregon and Washington. I know it doesn't fit geographically. We are trying to become a national brand. And how do we do that? We add teams from over there. We already added teams from the East Coast with Cincinnati, and we have West Virginia, and I guess UCF, if you consider that the East Coast or whatever. We are trying to be a national brand. I thought that word was very interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. And and yeah, the Big 12 is starting to nationalize already. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, they already... Okay, I wouldn't say they they only did to an extent in 2011 with uh, West Virginia. So that's just about it. But um, obviously with Houston, well, that's a Texas team, but Cincinnati going out east, BYU going out west, that circle could expand a lot more all the way to the coasts. I would love to see that, honestly. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that extend all the way out and definitely have a more nationalized conference, kind of like the Big Ten. Um, I, I am interested also to see what other conferences might possibly go with that. Because the SEC, like the SEC in my opinion, they're seen as a possible super conference. Well, they only have, I'm pretty sure, only two teams west of the Mississippi, two or three teams west of the Mississippi River. So would they nationalize to more... I don't. I wouldn't say definitely around the country, but maybe go a little bit further north 
or something like that, just to at least keep the name Southeastern Conference. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, let's say you have one in the West Coast. Or we're at the Southeast. Wait a second. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's the thing. And I, Big 12 is one of those countries that can get away with, or, or one of those uh, conferences that can get away with nationalizing. Same goes for the Big Ten. He is Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to hear more from Brett Yormark throughout the show, including coming up next. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Four o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. We're going to have a KU mailbag for you here. The Open is starting tomorrow. We're going to have a little preview for that and maybe a little bit of a betting card uh, for that as well. And then we have some more Brett Yormark audio um, coming up for you later on this hour. Some Chief Stock and Lance Leipold audio coming up for you in the five o'clock hour. Okay, so our KU mailbag for this week. Let's start it off. Dallas Jayhawk on Twitter wants to know which sport other than men's basketball um, will KU win their next Big 12 championship in? I'm going to go with volleyball, just given how talented they were in the second half of the season this past year and how they'll—I'm not saying they will next year or maybe in two years because, you know, Texas, they're the powerhouse of the Big 12, of course. But I would say three or four years, I think it would be volleyball. Yeah, volleyball makes a lot of sense, too, because with Texas possibly leaving the conference, now you are adding, like Cincinnati and UCF have had some good years in volleyball. They're not usually consistently like a top 25 team or a power or anything like that. Um, Houston, I don't know a ton about their volleyball program. I don't even know if they have one, to be completely honest. I, I, they might. I don't know. Um, BYU is the one that, that comes in. Yep. BYU is like a national power volleyball-wise. Consistently, they rank in the top 10 and everything like that. Like That's the team that's going to give you the biggest hurdle. But they haven't been to the power that the level of like Texas is or before Texas when Nebraska was in the Big 12 and, and what Nebraska even does in the Big 10 now. Um, so I think volleyball does make a lot of sense. Once Texas leaves, you look at Baylor, you look at BYU – those are the teams that you're going to have to beat, and I think that's doable for KU with the way we've seen their program be. That would make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, track and fields would make yeah. sense. We know KU's got like really good at track and field for both the women's and the men's side. It was about a decade ago that the uh, women's team won the track and field national championship. Um, so that wouldn't you know surprise me or anything like that. Man, I don't know. I, I guess it depends. Uh, like. What do you consider? Do you consider like the Big Twelve tournament? Because like we've seen the KU soccer team a couple years ago. I mean, I'm just thinking regular season. Yeah, that's right. what I was kind of thinking as well. Um, but if you did count that, like we saw the the KU women's soccer team win it a couple years ago, that ends up being more of a you know it's a, a one game elimination tournament, so it's harder to judge that way. But with the the facilities the KU women's soccer team has, you know, again Texas is usually really good at women's soccer. They're leaving the conference. Um, I don't know if that opens you up more for opportunities and, and possibilities there. But, yeah, volleyball seems like the one. I would agree with you there. Okay, this question from Matt. Uh, forget conference realignment from a standpoint of adding or subtracting. Conferences can now make trades. What trade are you making for the Big 12? 
Uh oh man. Um <laughs> I would I mean would you trade a basketball powerhouse for a football powerhouse just because of money? So who, who you consider are you saying trade Kansas? I mean they could trade Kansas for Bama. <laughs> I, well, I don't think the SEC is doing that trade to be fair. I agree. Um I can't think of one that is um like actually that actually could be quite possible. I mean Huh. Yeah, I can't. Nothing think of one. comes to mind. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Um, football is just what makes the money. So yeah, that's just where it's coming from. Okay, so I, I or think... trade the worst football team for Bama. Oh wait, yeah. oh again, <laughs> SEC is not taking that deal. Okay, um, I'm trading West Virginia. I it's nothing against them. You know, I I just think that when you look I at agree. geographically, like they would probably fit better into like the ACC, for instance, and they have schools that they have like rivalries with whether it's Syracuse, Pittsburgh, Virginia, Virginia Tech that are getting the area. Um I'm sure they would kind of appreciate that. Like they would be like, "You know, we we appreciate you sending us here." And if you can get like Louisville for them, you do it in a heartbeat. Louisville has a bigger media market. Um it's just a, a very big school. Now that said, I don't know if the ACC accepts that. I think you might have to, you know, you might have to sweeten the deal a little bit. You might have to, like, we'll give you West Virginia and $20 million and you give us Louisville, right? Or something like that. Right. Or, I don't know. I don't know who else the ACC would be willing to give up that you would be interested in if you were the Big 12. Like, you, you don't want to do Wake Forest for West Virginia. You don't want to do, you know, Boston College for West Virginia. That doesn't do anything for you. I think that's the one. You find a way to figure out what else you need to give with West. Maybe it's West Virginia and Cincinnati or something for Louisville. I think that would make Possibly. some sense. Yeah. Um, but again, if it's just West Virginia for Louisville straight up, I'm not sure the ACC accepts that. How about this? Let's let's try to bring a team back to the Big 12. Texas A&M is, is fine in the SEC. They're making boatloads of money, and, and you know they're firmly entrenched there and everything. Um, obviously, Texas and Oklahoma, gone. Colorado would make sense to bring over, but that might just happen inherently, so I'm not going to go that route. What about Nebraska? Bring them back to the Big 12. And, and I'm sure if you asked a lot of people in the Nebraska, even athletic department, if you said, you know, looking back to when you left for the Big 10, if you could go back in time and change that and stay in the Big 12, or would you continue on with this, what would you do? And I think a good majority would say we should have stayed in the Big 12. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say, um, so with me, because uh, uh, I was the voice of KU Baseball this last year, when we were in Missouri, there's this one worker that came in after the game was done, and she says, honestly, we shouldn't have left the Big 12. I was like, wow, I'm... <laughs> Uh, happy to hear you say that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> now, well, unfortunately, the people who are signing checks and the people up top of the athletic department would see that and say, no, I'm very glad we're in the Big Ten. What are you talking about? We are going to make, you know, two times the amount of money that, that your conference is going to make. So it's just kind of a, a way of looking at it from that standpoint, from the monetary standpoint. Of course, you'd be happy to be in the Big Ten from the athletic standpoint, from a competition standpoint, from how good they've been or the other way of looking at this, how bad they've been in football um, hasn't been a great fit for them. Now, would that have happened in the Big 12? It's quite possible. But um, I think maybe you could garner up some interest there. 
And I think if you can offer back, because again, like here's the problem. If you offer the Big Ten West Virginia for Nebraska, again, they are turning that down. Now, the one thing, Nebraska, when they joined the Big Ten, every member of the Big Ten was a member of the AAU. Nebraska was, but then they lost out of it. But when they joined the league, they were a member of the AAU. They were one of those institutions. Now that they've lost out, maybe the Big Ten is like, you know what? We're sticking our nose up at you. We'll, we'll get rid of you at a bit of a lower cost. But again, they're still not taking West Virginia for them. And West Virginia, I don't think, is a member of the AAU either. So that kind of hurts them. That makes me wonder, what if you give them Iowa State? Iowa State is a member of the AAU. But again, Iowa State is not nearly the brand of Nebraska. So that doesn't get it done. If the Big 12 offers the Big 10, Kansas and Iowa State for Nebraska, who says no there? Uh, yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, Do you think both conferences accept that? Big Ten would be getting two AAU universities. I see that. Two schools that definitely, in, in comparison to um, you know Nebraska, don't live up football-wise, but other sports, you know, they, they can get up there. I still don't think the Big Ten accepts that. Why do you why do you think that? Well, you'd just be adding more teams to, to split the pie with. I think Nebraska's mm. football brand is just is just that much. Okay, I see that. Um I don't know. I think that'd be interesting. Uh yeah, maybe you can figure something out. Again, maybe it's like a sum of money. Maybe it's we'll give you this amount of money, we'll give you Iowa State, we'll give you West Virginia, you give us Nebraska. Let's bring them back to the Big Twelve. Uh Nebraska is at this point like they're Kevin Durant. They're asking out for a trade, so it lowers their trade value. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of a cool question though. If how that about, were a possibility. How about we just trade away K State for cash considerations? Down for that. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh this one from Josh. What is the best pastry? A little more off the beaten path here. Um, I'm a big donuts guy. Donuts for sure for me. Big time. Yep. Especially especially uh Love Krispy Kreme donuts. Mm-hmm. They're they're probably my favorite. Yeah, donuts. Or that are that are chocolate long johns. I I, I enjoy. I'm not a big fan of the the filling in the middle. Oh, I don't I don't I get them without the filling. Oh, okay. That that yeah. I'm not I'm not a filling person. Um, uh, it, it it legitimately is just fried bread with chocolate on it. But mm-hmm. that's what makes it so delicious. So there will be sometimes where I'll go to Dunkin' Donuts and just grab a couple of those and. Just have at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, donuts are great. Uh, a good croissant, you know. Uh, that's I, I was just in Europe, and croissants just hit different out there. The jam is so much better. Like, it's all preservative-based with, like, jams and jellies here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so much more fresh there. Uh, good chocolate croissant. Ooh, that really hits. Madeleines are really good. Um, I don't know. There, there's some good pastries. But, yeah, donuts has got to be number one. Uh, this from Jeff, last one here. What are your thoughts on the Big 12 steering into being a basketball conference, adding Gonzaga and Arizona, among a few others, to beef that up? So instead of this being like, hey, what what football programs can we bring over to be the best brands, just fully steering into the idea? Because obviously you have Kansas, you have you know Baylor who wins the title two years ago, you've been to the Final Four with somebody in your conference four straight seasons, Um I mean, I was gonna say Big Twelve in my mind is already yes, it's the best quite well a basketball conference. conference. Does he mean like a bigger like, basketball, like the basketball? Yeah, conference. so I I think the the expectation here would be like you know you think back to like the Big East of old back in the days whether it was fifteen years ago or yeah. forty years ago where it wasn't just like the best basketball conference, which the Big Twelve is right now. 
it was like the best basketball conference and the deepest basketball conference, and it was not even close to anyone else. And you would have years where like the Big East tournament, you would have a team who was like the sixth seed in the Big East. Like I'm pretty sure that Kemba Walker UConn team that like uh, won the title in 2011 and, and won every tournament they were in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that team was like a six or a seven seed in the Big East tournament. And they ended up I getting so. a, uh, like a three seed in the NCAA yeah. tournament. They win the title. Like it was insane how deep that conference is. And, and you know, you add Houston, who's been so good in basketball. Um, UCF had a couple years there with like Taco Fall, Cincinnati. You know, last couple years falling off. But when Mick Cronin was there, they were uh, a really consistent force um, out of the the then Big East and then the AAC for a little bit there. Uh, and then BYU has traditionally been like a you know a solid basketball program to where you're adding more basketball in there. And with Texas and Oklahoma, like yes, I think Texas is going to be really good eventually under Chris Beard. But what we've seen over the last decade has not been like a great basketball program. Oklahoma has actually been a pretty darn good one when you think of you know Buddy Heald and and some of the years where they've just been consistently like a second round team in the NCAA tournament. So if you really wanted like. You know, you could you could fully steer into this, into the basketball thing specifically. Um, Gonzaga is a perfect example of this because, again, that doesn't make sense geographically, but hypothetically, let's say you're able to go out and get Oregon and Washington, and then you could be like, hey, Gonzaga, come join us for basketball. Right. We have your travel partners right up there. That doesn't help you in football, but it helps you in basketball. Arizona from the Pac-12, uh, like, they're, they're really bad in football, um, but they have a really rich... Uh, tradition basketball program from the West Coast, like that would only add to your basketball uh, stuff. And then, what if hypothetically, like in the ACC, you get to a point where you know some of these teams are leaving, and that becomes more of an opening for ACC teams that could possibly leave for other conferences. And then you have the option of being like, you know, Duke's not really good at football; they don't bring a ton to the table in some of these other sports. But man, we could have Duke, Gonzaga, Arizona, Kansas. Like we could be the premier basketball conference. I do think that is an interesting idea. I do too. I mean, I'm just thinking about Gonzaga right here. With the, I, I honestly believe of the past five to ten years, they are the best team in the country to have not won a title over the past decade, in my opinion. I mean, you look at last year. I thought they were going to win it all, and they ended up falling in the Sweet 16 against Arkansas. So. Um, it's just that they've been, well, inconsistent in March, but, you know, that I think that title is going to happen someday, and that would be pretty cool if that happened when they were in the Big 12 and they were able to get that much steeper competition than they have in the WAC. Well, maybe even if you just add the the four Pac-12 teams in, you know, the corner states or in uh, Colorado, the two Arizona schools in Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah, like maybe even that's enough to stretch out there to be like, hey, Gonzaga, come join us for basketball and the Olympic sports. Like, let's make it work. Right. Or even just basketball. Like, I, I don't understand why we're so tied down to you have to be in the same conference as everyone for all these different sports because the travel is going to get out of hand. Like, let's just do it for basketball and, you know, for the other sports, you can do whatever you want to do. And then I think that probably could be where we go eventually, where football is its own thing and the Olympic sports find a more centered way, which like makes sense to me. Like men's volleyball, not every college. In fact, a lot of colleges don't have men's volleyball. But like, for instance, Ohio State is not in the Big Ten for men's volleyball. They don't have a Big Ten. They're in the MIVA. So um, you could find ways to make that work. But yeah, that would actually be very appealing to me. That said, the bottom dollar is what's important here. And if it's not adding enough money to tangibly change things, if you don't have enough pieces on the football side to support the basketball side, 
then it's not going to make sense. So it makes some sense, but it can't be the only thing that you're worried about, I guess. With Lane Gillespie, I am Derek Johnson. That is our KU Mailbag for the week. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Before we go to break, though, real quick, uh, this is not great for the Kansas City Royals. The Royals will be without 10 players. I just took a picture. I, I, I don't know if you just saw me taking a picture. No, that, I didn't. But they had it. we have a TV here in the studio, and they had it all on the screen, and I was like, oh, shoot, I should take a picture of that for future reference. So, yeah, yeah it's good that you got into it. The Royals will be without 10 players in Toronto. <laughs> uh, so uh, you have to be vaccinated to play in Toronto, and that is obviously not the it, case with all these Royals. Yeah, because that's uh, um, it's Canada's guidelines. Yes, and uh, pretty notable names. Andrew Benintendi, MJ Melendez, Cam Gallagher, Whit Merrifield, Brad Keller, Brady Singer, Dylan Coleman, Hunter Dozier, Kyle Isbell, and Michael A. Taylor. The good news for Michael A. Taylor and Andrew Benintendi and, and kind of Whit Merrifield, all those guys are trade candidates, so I guess you don't <laughs> have to worry about them getting injured over the course of uh, the weekend, although Michael A. Taylor seems to uh, already be um, the case. But uh, honestly, like that's, uh, that's pretty not... problematic yeah. for especially because we've heard you know, trade rumors with the Yankees specifically and Andrew Benintendi and Michael A. Taylor and, and whoever it is, if you're in the American League, specifically in the American League East, you play the Toronto Blue Jays a good amount. But if you're in the AL at all, to where you're at risk of making the postseason and playing a series with the Toronto Blue Jays, that has to factor into your ability to want to trade for those guys, which is a problem because they might not want to give up as much because those guys would not be available for a postseason series against those teams or would miss essentially, you know, six games uh, if they have some a couple series to go in the second half on the road against Toronto. Like, that that clearly impacts the value that they could have. It could impact the amount of teams that are interested in them. That's not great for the Royals, right. both in terms of this series and in terms of the future uh, value to those guys. With Lane Gillespie, I am Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. We're going to take a timeout, get to our open preview coming up on the other side. On FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm super excited to find out whatever the Royals lineup looks like. I don't know how that works. That's got like, are they, allow, are they on some list that allows the Royals to call up 10 replacements for them here's, from AAA or here's what um Jake LeBond tweeted uh the lineup will probably be Rivera as the third baseman and Witt as the shortstop just continue on and then a lot of minor leaguers all right so we're gonna get into our uh open preview um today as the tournament's up 
tomorrow. Um, we did our U.S. Open preview back when that happened about a month ago, and um, I don't remember exactly how we did. I know we didn't pick the winner, but we did have the top five pick on Will Zalatoris. Uh, we had something on like Colin Morikawa, who finished in the top five. Xander Schauffele, uh was kind of around there, so I don't know. I hope we made you some money. Uh, the Open was played at or this year is going to be played at the old course at St. Andrews. It plays a little over 7,300 yards on a par 72, which plays pretty normal unless weather, you know, breaks in. And uh, that's something that typically in the Open, you know, some people call it the British Open. If you're a golf uh, historian or someone from there, that's offensive to call it that, and it is just the Open. But nonetheless, um, a lot of times weather does come into play there. And a lot of times, you know, it becomes a problem. You could have 40-mile-per-hour winds. You have these links courses where it, it makes things so difficult and, you know, it's thick roughs and everything, and, and you're just hitting it all over uh, the golf course because of the weather. Uh, the early forecast actually looks pretty good. It's it's high temperatures between 68 and 72, like not overly cold. Um rain occasionally at times but not like overly so and winds between 10 to 25 miles per hour which is like low for these events like I said there's been past events where it might be 40 to 50 miles per hour or something like that in these events so it doesn't sound great but it actually is a lot better than in years past um obviously driving distance always helps I always make the comparison that you know if uh, you are someone who is seven feet tall, you can dunk the basketball. You know, I might not be able to dunk the basketball. Maybe I can shoot threes better than the guy who's seven Wait, feet. you're not seven feet tall? No, I'm not. Oh. But the guy who is seven feet tall, even though I might be a better three-point shooter, he can potentially make a three-point shot. And, and that's the similarity to putting. Like, you might not be a good putter, you might be a good driver, but you can never all of a sudden just one day show up and start hitting 350 off your driver. You can show up for a round or over the course of a week and all of a sudden just start nailing pots from everywhere all over the field. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, it, it's always helpful to go that way. That doesn't mean it's the be all end all and that you can't overcome it um, to the other way. But, Certainly, when you can hit the ball far, it gives you more margin for error and, you know, in, in conditions where it can be windy and everything, like being able to hit it more stern is going to be helpful. But the fairways are pretty wide um, if you compare it to like a U.S. Open or something like that as, as far as the Open here. The big key is how players play on par fours, which, you know, that kind of becomes obvious. Um because 14 of the 18 holes on the golf course here are par fours. And when you look at par four scoring average, some interesting names, uh, you know, kind of pop up here with guys like Justin Thomas and Xander Schauffele. How about Seamus Power? Um, so, that would be something that you could definitely look into because that is going to be the case for this golf course. So with that being said, let's get into the picks based on all that. 
who uh, could possibly, you know, win this thing. Uh, I've got some top 10 bets, some top 5 bets, some top 20 bets, and then the uh, winner's bets as well. Uh, the first winner bet that I'm going to go with is John Rom. He is coming in at 16 to 1. So Rory McIlroy is the favorite here. Depending where you look, he's 9 to 1 or he is 10 to 1. And Rom is is tied 10th in average scoring on par 4s, so he passes that test. Uh, again, he's a little lower down, but that's because the the form has been a little bit more inconsistent for him. He was just 55th at the Scottish Open last week, but if you look through it, and, and you're going to hear me say it for some of these other golfers we go through, a lot of these other really good golfers missed the cut at the Scottish Open. I don't put a ton into the Scottish Open last week. Um, in a lot of ways, it could just be something for, you know, uh, players to kind of hone their game or figure out you know, certain areas that they're trying to improve on it and just fine-tune those things headed in to the Open this week. And on top of that, you have a lot of players coming over there to try to almost use that week as an adjustment week to get your body adjusted, to get your time clock adjusted for this week so that you, you know, feel more right and everything. And so you're going to have a lot of good golfers miss the cut in that situation. Um, He made the cut even though he didn't finish great. But before that... 12th, 10th, 48th, 1st in his four prior events. So, you know, that's three top 12s, including a win in the previous four before the 55th. And he's performed well in the Open. He's made four cuts in five events, two top 25s. He had a third-place finish last year, which was his best performance, so trending up in the right direction there. And in recent majors, 12th at the U.S. Open, uh, 48th at the PGA, 27th at the Masters this year, which hasn't been his best year overall at the majors. But he did have four straight top tens at the Masters before that. And one thing that we've seen, um, you know, as far as guys who win this event or do well in this event, and especially because of the conditions that could play out this week where we've seen a lot of winners finish closer to, you know, minus 14, minus 15, minus 16. Uh, a lot of guys who have had success at the Masters have carried that over into this event. So, again, John Rahm didn't have his greatest Masters, 27th this year, but he had four straight top tens. He's clearly been really good at Augusta, and you can get him 16-1 to 1 because it hasn't been as consistent this year as when he was ultimately dominant, like last year, for instance. So I really like that bet there. The next guy I'm going to take to win is Colin Morikawa. Colin Morikawa won this event last year, and he is running off at 35-1. to 1. He is... Tied 27th in average scoring on par fours in uh, PGA Tour events this season. Um, So, you know, that's obviously a positive. Um, He missed the cut at the Scottish Open last week, but he earned a fifth-place finish before that in the previous tournament. And like I said, I don't put too much into the Scottish Open last week because of the fact that was more of an adjustment thing and everything. Uh, but he won this event last year in his only appearance, and in recent majors, he has two top fives this year. You can get him at 35-1. to 1. He's been good in these major tournaments. I think those are really good odds compared to some other guys that are going off for way higher. Top five bets. Xander Schauffele is going up at plus 330 to get a top five, and this is one that I thought about taking as a winner going around 14-1, to 1, but... I don't know. Maybe this is just my silly brain. I, I just have a hard time seeing. He's he's won back-to-back events. It's really freaking hard to even win back-to-back events on the tour with how many good golfers it takes. It takes a good performance from you. It takes, 
you know, good performances uh, or your your opponents not to have like crazy performances. There's a lot that that makes it difficult to win, let alone back to back. So winning three straight now, like that, that's really really difficult. So I'm not going to quite take him to win, but. I, Plus three, three, three thirty to get top five. He's had seven straight top twenties. He's had four of the last seven events finish in the top five. And in the open, he was twenty sixth last year, forty first the time before in twenty nineteen. Those aren't you know numbers that jump off the page. But prior to that, he got a second place finish in twenty eighteen, a twentieth place in twenty seventeen. He has two top fifteens this year on majors. He uh, is just continue like he's one of those guys who hasn't had his major win yet. Um, but he's just constantly around the top. Will Zalatoris is plus 500 to finish top five. Uh, he's in good form. He, or, or I'm sorry, he, you know, was in good form till the Scottish Open, which we've talked about here, which he missed the cut. But he backed that up with second and fifth place finishes. In the Open, he withdrew last year, so we don't have a, you know, full um, kind of list on him in this event. But he has been nails in major events. Uh, nine major appearances for Will Zalatoris, six top tens, three top fives, so about one in every three times. And this year he has finished top six in all three majors, five to one to finish top five. Let's roll there with Will Zalatoris. But I don't want to take him to win because he hasn't shown the ability to get over the hump and get the win yet. So I'll take the top five for the money equity without taking him to win. Top 10 bet on Rory McIlroy at plus 100. It's basically an even odds bet that he can finish top 10. I I think there's been a lot of pressure in this event for him in the past, uh, depending where the course has been, uh, that especially. But, you know, um, I would say that I don't want to bet on him as high as his odds are to win again at like nine to 10 to one. I just don't think there's really value there. He has seven straight top twenties, including four top fives in his last seven. So that's obviously um, a really good run of play for him here. He's made the cut in 10 of his 12 open appearances. Like I said, he struggled kind of of late, but he still has five top fives overall in 12 appearances here. He has the 2014 title. He also has finished top eight in every major this year. I would be tempted to even throw a top five on him, but at the very least, you know, this could be a money back bet, right? If you hit this one as Rory McIlroy top 10 at plus 100, then it pays for one of your other bets. Uh, Jordan Spieth at plus 180, he finished 10th at the Scottish Open, so he didn't really get bothered by, you know, whatever time change and whatnot. Um, And he has, in eight appearances at the Open, made the cut in all eight. He has five top 25s. He has four top 10s, so about half the time, He's finishing top 10. He has three top fives, and he also won the event in 2017. Now, he hasn't been great in his recent majors. He did finish second in the Open last year. This year's struggle a little bit more, can be a little bit more inconsistent. I'll take the risk on him this week at plus 180. And my last bet for the Open is Cameron Smith at a top 20 bet at plus 150. He finished 10th at the Scottish Open, tying with Jordan Spieth. Uh, Prior to that, he missed the cut. And then prior to that, he finished 48th, followed by back-to-back 13th. So a little bit more up and down with the recent form. He finished 33rd in this last year, had a top 20 in the previous appearance in 2019. Um, but again, going back to that you know, Masters correlation to what goes well, he finished third at the Masters this year. He's also done well in another uh, op- or uh, 
major event, 13th at the PGA. He did miss the cut at the U.S. Open, but these obviously have bigger fairways and plays a lot differently than that. He has three straight top tens at the Masters, which, like I said, that can be a nice correlation here. Cameron Smith at plus 150. Kind of interesting, depending where you can get him. His odds, 20, 25 to 1 to win. Could be worth maybe a sprinkle there. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a very talented golfer. All right. That is the open preview. We'll have some open updates on tomorrow's show and throughout the day tomorrow on KLWN coming up next. We're going to finish out the Brett, uh, your Mark audio, uh, your Mark audio on the other side. Uh, this is rock chalk sports talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN depending on it. Did you know that on our website, KLWN.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Lane Gillespie. I am Derek Johnson. We've got some uh, Lance Leipold audio to share for you coming up later this hour. He uh, spoke with the media earlier today. We've got some audio we haven't gotten to yet that we'll get to at some time tomorrow. Um, but what I want to do here at the top of the five o'clock hour, there's uh, a bit of Chiefs news. And the deadline for coming to a long-term deal, being able to negotiate essentially with a player on the franchise tag is Friday. So that's obviously you know coming up in a couple days here. It's been noted Orlando Brown is on the franchise tag. The Chiefs decided to give him that franchise tag. Um, this comes from Mike Garofalo of NFL Network last night. The Chiefs and left tackle Orlando Brown are not close on a long-term deal with under three days left to do one. If no deal is reached before Friday... I wouldn't expect Brown for the start of training camp, and week one isn't a certainty either. That's not great, no. starting left <laughs> tackle, right? I mean, this is both a you know short-term and long-term situation for you. Now, ideally, you could have like Lucas Niang coming back, and you drafted Darian Kennard. Now, I, I think the expectation more for him is that He's more of like a guard that could swing out to tackle in, in kind of a pinch for you. But you did draft Darian Kennard in a later round. Um, normally a later round pick, you don't want to have expectations of, Joe, just come in right away and be a starter. But he was one of those guys, kind of a la Trey Smith the year before, who was a sixth rounder, ended up coming in right away and being great as a rookie and starting that people were like, oh, he could have been a second or third round pick. How did he fall this far? Maybe some things out of his control or whatever. That was kind of the case there. So you do have some options there, hypothetically, if if you need someone else at left tackle. Again, Lucas Niang, however he recovers. Uh, one thing that I, I heard was, was very interesting. I guess Eric Fisher is a free agent right now, and obviously he knows the system very well. Uh, uh, do, you, do you honestly see him coming back? Because I don't. I mean, that's opinion. that's the problem, right? It's it's uh, What are the feelings going to be there? Um, 
because he was cut from the Kansas City Chiefs. It wasn't just, hey, your your contract's up. We're not going to re-sign you. We made this trade for this other guy. It was, no, we're cutting you. You go do what you need to do. Now, how individual people take that depends to be seen. Like, clearly, that has been something that uh, the Chiefs have not been able to repair that relationship, it seems like, with, like, a Justin Houston, for instance. Maybe it's different for Eric Fisher. Maybe Eric Fisher views it as, hey, I understand, like, I was I was coming off a, a bad injury. I forget if it was torn ACL or torn Achilles or whatever it was. Um I, I understand why you would do that. Like, I understand this is a business. Some guys are able to separate those things. Others are not. Now, if he is someone who is going to be understanding of that and he says, because that's the other part of this, too. Like, it's one thing to hold a grudge on a situation like that and to be like, no, I'm never playing for you again. But what happens if, because, again, he's a free agent right now. Nobody has signed him. What happens if the Chiefs come along and say, we'll give you a one-year deal worth I don't know, $6 million and no other team is willing to go above three or whatever. Like at that point, the money kind of talks and I don't know what the money would be. It might be more than that. It might be less, whatever. Um, so I don't know the the relationship there. You're right. Like, could we actually expect that to happen? I don't know. But if that is something where he would be interested in, like maybe that is a play that you make um, just to give yourself more depth there. But I think that would have to be under the idea that you legitimately don't think that Orlando Brown is going to to play for you on right. the franchise tag that he actually is willing to sit out because you know if you're signing Eric Fisher it's it's probably not to be a backup tackle you know what I mean right I am curious on what kind of obviously Orlando Brown wants a long term deal but I'm thinking you know to what extent mm-hmm. he's only been on the team for one year um, and I, I basically yeah I'm just trying to think I, I mean in my mind the Chiefs need him because that guy is so darn good. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, why did they get Orlando Brown? Well, if you look back at the uh, Super Bowl against the Buccaneers, the O-line sucked. <laughs> right. However, the the Chiefs didn't even – I almost said the Royals for some reason. The Chiefs didn't even make the Super Bowl last year. And they were they were talented. They had their ups and downs here and there, but they didn't even make the Super Bowl. Um, but I think that they are they're, – they're honestly, with this roster, they are still a contender, and they probably will be for – for a while, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. So, um, like, because the, the thing is that Orlando Brown has to be that piece. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you traded for him to help you win now, but also be a a young future pillar of the core. So, like, you ideally want to keep him on a long term deal. Um, and I think even enough that some of the numbers that I was hearing in the off season that you know different reporters would say this is what he's seeking or, or this would be my projection for what he's going to make. I would even look at them and be like, man, that might be a little higher than I would go, but like, I get it. He's a young left tackle, and you want to build on that, and you, you traded stuff for him. Now, I will say, I, I understand you traded stuff for him, and, um, you know, you don't want to, like, that's the sunken cost fallacy. Don't just be like, hey, we traded stuff for him. Now we have to overpay him to bring him back because we saw how that worked out with Frank Clark. Right. Ideally, you probably wouldn't be making these trades for players like this but that's uh, another day and another discussion um apparently according to some of these reports orlando brown wants 25 million dollars per year at the left tackle position to reset the tackle market hmm. that's a lot of money yeah. and out of comparison <laughs> trent williams who had one of the highest graded pro football focus seasons i've ever seen we had the story earlier this week he's the first offensive lineman in NFL history, or, or I guess in, in video game history, I don't know, for to, to get a 99 rating on Madden, um, 
widely renowned as one of the best or the best offensive linemen, left tackles, whatever you want to put it as, in the NFL. Trent Williams is making $23 million per year. Orlando Brown wants to be paid more than that guy who is the best at his position. Interesting. And I get it, like, part of it, because you say, oh, well, but but Orlando Brown, you know, Trent Williams is older. He's in his, like, low to mid-30s. And um, also, just the natural progression of the market in every sport is people just leapfrog each other, right? We, we see this all the time where uh, somebody sets the market and he makes – 17 million. Then the next guy comes along and, and maybe he's just as good or maybe he's slightly worse, but he gets 18 million and, and it just continues to, to ramp up on itself. So you understand part of that. But the problem here is that, you know, it's one thing if, hey, Trent Williams is the best. He's making $23 million per year. Here, you're a top five left tackle too. We'll give you 24. We'll give you $25 million a year. Like, you're in at least the vicinity there. We understand you You want to keep setting the market, right? Did the Chiefs even have enough money to give them $25 million a year? Well, they couldn't? It, I, yes. I mean, I would. I was going to say I would hope so, one. But two, given how much all the, ta- all the other tackles make, do they also believe that they could reset the tackle market to keep Orlando Brown? Yeah, see, I don't know how that factors into the long-term stuff because, like, that's something that I'm sure they have planned out like, oh, this is how much we're going to play, pay this guy and this is how much we're projecting. We're going to have to give this guy an extension and we're going to cut this guy in the future and all those things. Like those are questions I don't have the answer to. Um, for 2023, uh, the Chiefs have about $14, 15000000 million of cap space available next year, so that's not a ton. Um, but obviously, it just depends on how you structure the contract, right? It could be he only is making five million this year. He's only making ten million next year. Then it's up to you know thirty million, and and then you have signing bonuses that get involved. Uh, you cut certain players, right? Like all that goes into it. I would assume they would be able to afford it. Um, they can definitely afford it this year because this year most of it would be backloaded, and and it would actually lower his cap number this year, uh, based on most readings, which would uh, like that's the other piece of this that comes into play. Um, if the Chiefs are able to reach a long-term deal with him because it would open up more money this year by lowering his cap number this year, it would allow the Chiefs to get creative and possibly go out and afford a guy like Robert Quinn in a trade. And Robert Quinn had like 20 sacks last year with the Bears. He's making, I think, uh, if he were traded and you get rid of like the dead money that the Bears would owe him, he'd be making $13, $14 million a year. If you make this move for Orlando Brown, you would be able to afford bringing on, you know, Robert Quinn. So that's part of this too, that you want to get a long-term deal done so that you could afford bringing in a win now piece like Robert Quinn that would help you at one of your team's biggest weaknesses and help you to try to win another Super Bowl. Um, but as far as the, the Orlando Brown part of it goes, like him individually, because that all matters too. It's like I said, it's one thing if he's still like a top five left tackle or if he's at least in the vicinity of that guy, even if he's not better. Okay, you pay him around that money. Um, But it's not even a sure thing that he's a top 10, you know, tackle in the NFL, top 10 left tackle in the NFL. Like, don't get me wrong, he's a good player. Uh, Pro football focus grade, like 74, 75. And uh, the pro football focus scale, if you're an 80 or above, you are um, a high quality player. If you're a 70 to a 79, um, he is above average. So basically, he's he's above average by their scale. If you look at the run blocking grade, though, in terms of run block, like success rate, um, 
he is second in the NFL. So by run mm. blocking grade, he is one of the best run blockers in the NFL. By pass blocking, again, the, the grade goes down a little bit more. And if you just looked at it by like sacks allowed, he's 27th in the NFL in, in sacks right. allowed, which if you think about it, you know, every team has two tackles, left tackle, right tackle, plus if you had depth. But if we're just talking about starters, that gives 64 tackles. That means if you're around the 27th, the 30th best at, at pass blocking, mm-hmm. you're basically an average pass blocker. You're an elite run blocker. You total up the two. You're somewhere between probably the 10th to 15th best tackle in the NFL. So obviously, again, good player, young player, deserves to make a good amount of money. But when you start talking about being the highest paid and you're probably not a top 10 at that position, that's where things get a little sticky right. here. And, and I also wonder, you know, are they going to take that grade into account? Because what's priority number two? Priority number one is win. What's priority number two? Well, protect Patrick Mahomes at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that the Chiefs are sitting here like, okay, hey, if you want $25 million a year, let's do a short-term deal, right? They did that with Chris Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do a you know, two-year $50 million deal or something like that that gives us more flexibility. I, I don't know if that would actually be something they'd be interested in. Maybe it would be, but I, I think Orlando Brown probably wants the long-term security. Um, that makes it more difficult because I even think that, like I said, like some of the projections you would see where it would be like, yeah, he's going to get a five-year, $100 million deal. And it's like, wow, even $20 million feels like a bit of a lot there. The uh, right. franchise tag's paying him like $16, $17 million a year. That feels about like the right amount per year. Like if you said, okay, he's going to get five years, $80 million. That's $16 million a year. It's long-term. Like that, that seems like a good number there. Getting up from 16, 17, maybe $18 million a year to all of a sudden 25. Like, that's the difference between being able to afford another solid receiver, right? Being able to go out and get a Juju Smith Schuster, being able to go out and get a Marquez Valdez Scantling. Um, and so that that becomes like kind of the difficulty of where the Chiefs are at here. It's kind of similar to with Tyreek Hill. Like, they wanted to extend him, they offered him contracts. But when he said he wanted to be making, you know, $30 million a year, they might have been saying, no, we'll pay you $20 million a year. We'll give you good money. We can't pay you $30 million per year. And I don't know what the deal is with them being able to trade or not with Orlando Brown, but you've kind of, it's kind of unfortunate that we're here now because if this was the situation at the draft, you just say, okay, we'll trade you for, you know, we'll get a second round pick or we'll get, maybe you can get a first round pick or something like that for him. And you just say that, um, you know, we'll reset, we'll draft someone else, we'll sign a veteran to come in and kind of bridge the gap for now. But now you're you're kind of behind it. Now, like I said, maybe you could go out if there was interest there with Eric Fisher and you bring him on and maybe somebody will give you a second-round pick in next year's draft for Orlando Brown and you just deal with it this year. I don't really know what you, you try to do. I think here's my guess what happens. The Chiefs just stick to whatever their cost is. I'm assuming Orlando Brown and his agent and, you know, team or whatever – don't end up agreeing to the terms. And then he skips camp. We get to the first week of the season and he ends up playing. It's very rare that you actually see the guy. Like we see guys sit out of camp all the time. It's very rare. You see them actually miss games. There have been a few examples. Um, the late Vincent Jackson. I remember he did that missed like the first nine weeks, but then you're still giving up a lot of money. Now, you're not getting fined because technically you haven't signed the contract, so you're not under contract with the team. So you're not getting fined, but you're not making the money of those games, and that is a risk onto itself. So here's my guess. He ends up playing it out. The Chiefs view it as a one-year deal. They give him the franchise tag again next offseason, except next offseason they go into it saying, 
our plan is to trade him away. Our plan is to give him the franchise tag so that we don't lose him for nothing. And, you know, we'll do what um, we've seen some teams do in the past, like DeForest Buckner with the 49ers got put on. I could have sworn he got put on the franchise tag and then he was traded to the Indianapolis Colts. You know, we'll put him a franchise tag. We'll get a second or third round pick for him. We'll use one of our early draft picks on a tackle or we'll go out in free agency and try to get somebody who may be a little bit cheaper. Um, unless maybe he just puts up that season. If he puts up that type of season where you are saying, yeah, he is one of the top five left tackles, then you say, okay, you earned your money. We'll give you the $25 million a year because at that point, it probably is worth it uh, to protect protect Patrick Mahomes. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of my guess of what happens is that um, at this point, like I'm not really expecting Orlando Brown to be on the Chiefs for like a long-term deal. Yeah, if history repeats itself, I think that's just exactly what's going to happen because we see that more often than not, honestly. Mm -hmm. Because I know you mentioned – you know, the examples time and again of what's happened. But I think more often than not, short-term deal comes around, then they either figure it out or there is a trade. Um, It's just that the Chiefs mindset kind of just has to be, I don't know how you can replace him in the short term, like this upcoming season. That's the issue. Because then, then I would argue you have to find a way to keep Orlando Brown at least for a year, like a one-year, $21, $22 million contract or something like that, if you're not able to get the 25 or make ends meet with something like that. Because then it's either that or Orlando Brown has to sacrifice a little bit of that money if he wants a long-term deal. Or I wouldn't say the Chiefs are screwed, but um, you, you have to find that. You have to fill that void one way or another. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Whit Merrifield said his decision to not get vaccinated is a personal choice, blah, 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 all these things we've heard. Um, <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is funny here. He basically (laughs) says, um, because I understand what Canada has in place right now, that's the only reason that I think about getting it at this point is to go to Canada. That might change down the road. Something happens and I happen to get on a team that has a chance to go play in Canada in the postseason. Maybe that changes. But as we sit here right now, I'm comfortable with my decision. My teammates support me, support the rest of the guys in here who have made that decision, and that's that. So he basically is saying... The only way I'll get the COVID vaccine is if we're playing Toronto in the playoffs. That's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. Are we seeing Aaron Rodgers, Kyrie Irving again? I don't know if it's that. Not quite that extent. Not quite that extent. Not not that extent, but like it's. I just think it's it's funny because like imagine that being a conversation. The two GMs are on the phone at the trade deadline and one of them is like, hey, we really want Merrifield. We need some speed. He gives us, you know, we can use him in different positions on the field and all this stuff. Um, but is he going to get vaccinated? And they're like debating back and forth. Like, is he going to get vaccinated? <laughs> well, it depends. Are you going to be playing a series against Toronto? Just kind of a, a weird wrench into all this that I hadn't really considered until all these guys are uh, not going to yeah. be out there for the road. I didn't, I didn't even think it would no. it would be that deep of a no. that deep of a problem. But now that I think about it, like every player you might be acquiring, especially if you're in the American League, like you have to at least ask that question now because you know you don't want to all of a sudden your big like, what if somebody goes out and acquires some stud starting pitcher, like Luis Castillo, uh, who's an all-star for the Reds, is on the trade. But I, and, and I don't mean to, like, throw names out there because I don't know if they're vaccinated or not. I'm just, like, hypothetically, some big-name pitcher, some big-name bat gets traded at the trade deadline, and you trade for him, and you're in New York, and all of a sudden you play six games in Toronto in the second half or whatever it is, and then you play them, you happen to play them in the first round of the playoffs, and you don't get him for any of those, like, 
That would kind of suck if, yeah. you, if you traded a lot <laughs> to get that player and, and he didn't even end up mattering in your biggest games of the season. But um, I guess that's something that uh, GMs will have to certainly consider. All right, we've got some Lance Leipold audio to share for you coming up on the other side. We'll split that up into the next two segments with Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, the KLWN app. Depend on it.